two, three. Welcome to. <laughs> no, we gotta do it at the same time, so we're just gonna stay recording. Welcome, Welcome to, to a Florida, Florida thing. thing. I am your host, Tyler, with my grandmother, Grammel. Today, we're gonna chat about the collection We Can't Help It If We're From Florida News Stories from a Sinking Peninsula, published by Borough Press, a small press based in Orlando that's helped change the lip scene in the Sunshine State. We'll then talk to Borough Press publisher Ryan Revis about the future of literary events, his tips for aspiring small press publishers, and how even a story set on another planet can still be a Florida story. We are going to be talking about the Borough Press Anthology, we Can't Help It If We're From Florida, New Stories from a Sinking Peninsula. This was edited by Shane Hinton, and it has folks like Sarah Gerard, Jeff Parker, Jakira Diaz, Laura Vandenberg, Amy Parker, Alyssa Nutting, Kristen Arnett, and the list goes on. This collection was published in 2017, and it's got a great cover. I love the uh, cover. I had to get used to it because I didn't like the mouse, but he woo! is looking like he's a little, maybe Mickey had a, a few too many. He's gone through a couple better metamorphosis or something. He looks evil, but I'm getting used to him. This is a range of fiction, essays, and poetry. So we're going to just highlight some of the, the work that particularly spoke to us. I think for me overall, the collection has a lot of really interesting moments, and I think it's a really cool take on what Florida literature is and what it can be. Pieces about the environment. There's pieces about... Love. Traffic. Baseball. What it means to live in Florida, what it means to be a Floridian. Family secrets. The things that we carry. There's some dark pieces, some quirky pieces, some funny pieces. There's a lot of range. One of my favorite was Major Disassociation on Crescent Lake by Jeff Parker. That man has an imagination, and the story really kept me engaged. It left a lot to figure out, but then he uh, finished it in a a unique way. I never knew what was going to happen next, so I think that was the one that stood out the most for me. That's one of the reasons why I really like you as a reader, because if I were to think predictably like, oh, which one would have been your favorite? I wouldn't have immediately gone to that one because there has some weird elements to it that you don't quite know what's going on. That really keeps me reading. I'm happy to hear that that one was one of your favorites. Essentially, he meets someone and asks her to pretend like she is his old girlfriend. And then it just kind of goes from there. Yeah. There's geese murders in it. Floating house. A sinkhole. A sinkhole. It was so well developed over such few pages. And we really got a lot of interesting characters. He gets a lot of info in there. But it's not jumbled. It's very, you don't get mixed up at all. It's very well written. It just is really a wild ride to read it. But I liked it. I liked it. And there was two little old ladies in it that fussed at some people. And little old ladies, you have to be careful of little old ladies. And you have to be careful of geese. (laughs) Birds are mean. 
So are little old ladies right. if you uh, cross them. And they might bite you, too. <laughs> right. I mean, birds, I have a thing. I love birds. I love watching them. But you don't want to get near them because they are not the friendliest. Their beaks are sharp. The goose's name, though, do you remember the goose's name? No. It was Zaza. Me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like Jaja Gabor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was very well thought out to come up with that name for them. So what was another one that you wanted to talk about? Well, of course, and I, I'm crazy about love and the one about the uh, couple. And he was blind. It starts off with him stepping off the um, curb and uh, almost falling. It was just a dear, dear story. You're talking about this one called All Right Now Cupid. Oh, yes, that's right. Cupid, love. You know, there's a lot of older people in Florida, to say the least. That's what we're known for. I mean, one of the main things we're known for. And so I thought that was just a real good story to put in there. And so y'all need to read it where you know more about it. Then I like the... Uh, well, and that story set up. So they take like an okay Cupid dating profile and they use the kind of questions like, tell me about yourself as a prompt. And so each question, that's how it's structured. Am I thinking, I'm thinking about the, why are you giving me that look? That's the one. The guy that. was blind? Yes, I'm reading it now. Yeah. My self-summary. Taking a turn on Stockton last month, I saw a pedestrian stubble on the curb almost into the path of my Sonata and staggered backward on, onto the sidewalk. He was a blind man. And then they go throughout. What am I doing with my life? I'm really good at. Those are, maybe you didn't like recognize that because you haven't been online dating. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very merry widow. <laughs> that was your favorite term for the podcast. Yes. Just so nobody has any questions I'm about anything. I'm a very merry widow. Very merry. But no, so that was a structure. They were using online dating profile questions to kind of structure the piece. Okay. And that one. That was, makes sense. That piece, it also took place in Orlando, which felt very real to me because I've lived in Orlando. So I kind of was able to visualize what they were talking about. And that piece is called All Right Now, Cupid. And that's by Sarah Homie Frisis. And that got my attention because right away they mentioned the word Stockton. And my favorite basketball NBA retired player is John Stockton. Number 12, Utah Jazz. Utah Jazz, number 12. There you go. I'm not always into the poems you guys write now because, like I say, I like roses or red, violets or blue. Uh, I like, like things that rhyme. that don't rhyme. But the one about the defining the uh, hurricane, that was very good. That was kind of mild about our hurricanes, but by Derek Austin. Right. So Derek Austin has the opening poem is about water and the closing poem is about weather and water as well. So what does he do for a living besides, of course, besides poetry? Is he, a, is he a forecaster? I'm not sure what Derek does. I don't think he's a meteorologist or so anything. So he's, he's just <laughs> into water, huh? Or that was, you know, a metaphor that they wanted to explore. I think a lot of Florida writers are inspired by the environment and by hurricanes and nature. Because there's a lot of natural disaster and natural splendor in Florida, too. I mean, we have the extremes, beauty and destruction. And I think that's a really interesting interplay for a lot of writers as meditation on Florida. Well, what were some, what was one of your favorite stories? I like a lot of the writing in here. And what I really enjoy about this book is that there's a lot of range. 
So I liked a lot of the pieces, but one piece that I that I remember really, because I've read this multi, like more than once, but that keeps coming back to me is a piece called Kiwano by Laura Vandenberg about sleepwalking. Oh, yeah, that was very good. Yes, that was really eerie. Because essentially it's about her sister who is a sleepwalker or... Maybe sleepwalker is not the appropriate term. Like, I forget what the technical term is, but she walks during her sleep. And then the sister starts, I mean, the one writing the story. Right. So there's a traumatic thing that happens that kind of triggers her sister's insomnia. So all of that I was really interested in. And there was an adrenaline that I got throughout reading that story. Well, and I I thought her husband was pretty broad-minded, too. And that's all we're going to let y'all know about that. But another favorite, of course, is always Sarah Gerard. But the one I'm trying to get to say is In Praise of the Greyhound. I like that story by Nathan Duell, D whatever. (laughs) D E whatever. I can't even. You can't read your I think it's D U D E U E L. Whatever. Is that right? Uh, I don't know how you pronounce that. Or is that an A? A lot of the times people mispronounce my and my last name and definitely your last name. Like I don't think anyone is looking it, at your last name is gonna pronounce it. Yeah, correctly. if they look at it, they're not gonna pronounce it right. Well, how do you pronounce that? Dual? That's probably right. I had more trouble reading my handwriting than pronouncing the last name because my handwriting wasn't all that good. Well, I want to just something that I do usually like when I'm I'm hosting a reader or I'm introducing a reader at an event or something like that. I always ask what their last name is and how they pronounce their first and their last name because you don't want to mispronounce someone's name when you are introducing them. That's happened to me before. Someone introduced me at a reading. This is so funny. This is my very first reading in New Orleans. The host, he didn't come up or talk to me or anything, anything like that, but he mispronounced my last name. He didn't even mispronounce it. He called me the wrong last name. And I took it in stride. I said something kind of funny, which worked into my favor because then the crowd was like laughing and they were on my side. So I couldn't initially get them on my side, which I always try to do whenever there's a mistake that happens. Like I didn't want to make the host feel bad. Like I didn't say anything about him. If he was like, oh, it's Tyler Smith. I said something like, like pronounce Gillespie or something (laughs) like that, you know? But yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there because I don't like mispronouncing people's last names and especially when you're introducing them. I just think it's kind of a good practice for anyone who's introducing a reader to ask how they pronounce their name. But if anything I've learned in 60 years of having this last name is it doesn't bother me at all if anybody mispronounces it because there's no way they could get it right by looking at it. It's called In Praise of the Greyhound. Not about the dog, though. I kind of thought it at the I was beginning. thinking, too, just because I like greyhounds, it was fresh on my mind. We've done a story on uh, that included greyhounds. Yes, plug the podcast. <laughs> yes, we've done a story on, on the greyhound that runs. When I was going to be a junior in high school, I was at a assembly. And these people came from a tobacco company in East Granby, Connecticut. And I was born in Largo, Florida. There were people that had gone to the camp to sow tobacco that came to our school to talk us into coming to it. And you got paid and so on and so forth. 
I love my home and I love my parents and I did not want to go, but my best friend did. And I said, well, okay, we'll ask my mother. No, and she was going to say no. Well, she said yes. And she told me later, well, Marjorie always said no to you. And I thought it was time to say yes. But anyway, I went on it all the way to East Granby, Connecticut, and home, of course, on a Greyhound. So I could really get into a lot of the things that um, Nathan wrote about. It is an adventure and it's an education to ride a half a dozen of the people, maybe 10, I knew. But most of the people I didn't know, and you make stops and you change drivers and you don't know if the driver can drive good or not. It's a real education. And, uh, and of course, we got there just fine. And I stayed there for 10 weeks and we took two trips. If you stayed that extra two weeks from eight to 10 weeks, you got a trip to Boston and you got a trip to New York City. And how he maneuvered those, how they maneuvered those Greyhounds in New York City was amazing. That story was very good, and that character was amazing. So Nathan's story is an essay. So it was from his true life. And he takes, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, he walks for a long time down to Florida, and then he takes the Greyhound back to New York. What I I appreciate about that story, too, is because there was some marital conflict or something. I... I don't know if there was conflict, but they said... Well, he always promised his wife. his wife that he'd be gone just four weeks. I think it, it was his idea to just be gone four but weeks. But he really glamorized the Greyhound, just how it makes you slow down. It's, it's slower than an airplane. You meet interesting people. And it really made me nostalgic. Like, it's so weird to be in the quarantine being like, I really wish I could go ride a bus now. You know? Well, you and I went on a couple of bus yes, trips, too. we're bus riders. So we went on two trips, one to Savannah and one to South Florida. Remember, we went to that island, too. Oh, so we've been on a few trips. Yeah. So overall, really enjoyed reading this collection. What I like about this book is that defining Florida literature, and this is something we can ask Ryan about, which we can ask Ryan about, who is the publisher at Borough Press, Defining Florida literature can be very difficult. There's a lot of great writers in Florida, a lot of up-and-coming writers in Florida, a lot of established Florida writers. So I think this book does a really good job of showing the range of what Florida writing can be. Yeah, and I have a whole bunch more to talk about. But well, we, we can talk about we, another one, but I... Well, we don't. I know we don't, don't... We have a time frame here, but I have really been impressed doing this podcast and doing the reading I've done of all the um, authors being connected to Florida. You guys are amazing. It's been a real eye-opener. Like Tyler said, y'all have a range, and I appreciate reading y'all. And now we are going to talk to the publisher of Borough Press, Ryan Rivas. We're going to talk about Florida literature, the future of lit events, and also his tips for aspiring folks who want to be in small press publishing. So I'm just going to drop us right into our conversation. Before he was even born, I wanted not to be called grandmother or grandma or granny. 
So my initials are M-E-L. And so I decided you could put gra in front of that, and that sounded pretty neat. So I'm Connors Grimmel. I love that. And uh, my name is Margaret, but I go by Margie. You can use <laughs> any of those three. Fantastic. I love that you guys are doing this. It's the perfect thing to be doing amid all this isolation and everything. So we both read We Can't Help It If We're From Florida. I had the book here. And I think also it's a good one to read since we are focusing on Florida authors and Florida writers, and there's a bunch of great folks in there. So I'm wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about that book. I know Shane edited it, but how did that kind of come together, that whole thing? It actually came together at Sanibel, the Sanibel Writers Conference. It was um, Shane's idea. He he kind of loved the title. It may have formed all around the title, which is a borrowed title from a punk compilation from the 80s called We Can't Help It If We're From Florida. It was a bunch of different punk bands from different record labels in Florida. So in a way, it was its own Florida showcase. And obviously, the title is great. It's, you know, cynical, sarcastic. And so we both share, up to that point, you know, we've been friends. And so we both share an interest in people who write about Florida and reading about Florida and literature. He proposed the idea and I was like, okay, let's make it happen. And we just made a big list of people. We probably reached out to double the amount of writers that appear in the book. Some people couldn't do it. Some people didn't have the time or didn't necessarily have anything Florida related or the time to create it. I think we landed on a pretty great batch of folks, many of whom have gone on to do great things, you know, aren't necessarily known as Florida writers, per se, but grew up here, it stays with you, even if you don't consider yourself a Florida writer. I'm trying to think if any of the writers in the anthology were writing about Florida for the first time. Probably not. I know a lot of them didn't necessarily consider themselves regional. And I I get that because Florida comes with a lot of stereotypes. And so I think whether or not somebody who grew up here and cherishes growing up here and even maybe writes about it would want to risk even being associated with those stereotypes by saying, I'm a Florida writer. Or I also understand why a writer wouldn't want to be pigeonholed. Any writer, not just a writer from Florida, but why a writer wouldn't want to limit themselves to a region. I might call myself a Florida writer, but at the same time, I don't necessarily feel limited to to write about Florida if I don't want to, even though I might continually do it. That's just because I think that the place leaves an impression. I'm, I'm of this place, right? And when I say, like for me personally, I'm sure it's something different from everyone or for everyone, but... You know, when I say I'm a Florida writer, it's because I've lived in the state since birth. I grew up here, never left for some reason. And I think it's the place undeniably has a, I don't know, it, le- it leaves a mark. And actually, um, I was talking to Sarah Gerard about this the other day. I'm going to misquote her. Hopefully it'll appear in an interview soon. But she talks about how, you know, places where you grew up, they leave, they have their own like architecture and imagery that is imprinted on you. She said that's why she writes about Florida and New York, the two places where she's lived, because those places leave imprints. You don't necessarily have to do as much or any research on the setting itself too, because you're you're immersed in it, you understand it on an emotional level, as well as like a sort of physical, topographical level. I wanted to ask you, because Shane, in the beginning, they say like, what is Florida literature? Mm-hmm. And then it's a big metaphor. I wondered yeah. about that choice. What the conversation was to go with that? Yeah, um, the initial idea, do we want to do an intro? Do you want to write something for this Shane to kind of set the tone, I guess, for the rest of the work? He said he'd think about it. He didn't necessarily want to do something academic or, you know, essayistic. I agreed with that approach too, because I, you know, you just heard my definition of Florida literature. 
and that's certainly not anyone else's. And so the, the goal of the anthology was, as is the goal kind of the online journal to sh that we run, Fantastic Florida, is, is to show the plurality, right? And to not impose one kind of definition. So I know that his choice to write essentially like a flash fiction sort of piece about how a sinkhole kind of sucks up a house and, you know, and what's, you know, underneath and kind of like layers of history. It's kind of a metaphorical definition for him of what Florida literature is. And I know it was inspired by, um, similar to Paget Powell's essay, What is Southern Literature? I think there's a little bit of more of a, I'm going to tell you about Southern literature, but I can't before it goes into like an anecdotal story. Um, I haven't read it in a while, but I know that that was a direct influence. We were able to make an intro by saying, what is Florida literature? So people think introduction and then immediately sort of subvert expectations to let people know that it's ambiguous, but that the people chosen for this anthology, you know, if you can't trace their resident or to, to Florida as Florida writers, then they're at the very least writing about Florida. And so it's Florida literature, you know, Florida literature is the lens through which people choose to portray Florida. And so we, we weren't interested in naming it. I liked or, it. I thought that was a good approach. Yeah, thank you. An author we were talking to, even though she's lived away now for over 25 years, I guess, her books are located in Florida because mm -hmm. she was born and raised here. She went to college someplace else, and that's why she ended up living in that area. When she goes to write, it's about Florida. What book was that? Stiltsville. Stiltsville, yeah, yeah. Actually, Susanna Daniel, she, we did an, an anthology of Miami writers, too, that Jakira Diaz approached me about and edited way back in what feels like a decade ago, but I guess it was only 2014, mm -hmm. um, came out in 2015. Yeah, Susanna Daniels in there, all, and those are all Miami-based writers too. So it's a similar idea. And I remember in Jakira's intro, it's also not about naming, you know, what is Miami literature? What is the one Miami experience? It's just like the rest of Florida. Like it's, it's seen through so many lenses. There isn't one, you know, there isn't one necessarily dominant culture or dominant view. There's just millions of pockets of of uniqueness, right? Cool. When did you start Burrow and what was the idea? And then how did that all start? Yeah, so Burrow started in about 2010. I had a co-founder, Jenna Waring, and we were in a writing group together We uh, in Orlando. There wasn't like a, a writing scene per se. There was a lot of slam poetry, which is great, but it wasn't what we were doing. Um, and there has been and continues to be that scene in Orlando, which is fantastic, but not what we were doing. And so we thought, well, let's see who else is writing short stories, for example, in Florida. So the idea to start a press was kind of a whim. We thought we would put together a book of short stories by Florida writers. And so we put a call out. Way back then, at the time, there was a magazine called Analemma um, that was run by this guy, Chris Hebner. And he, he had since moved to New York and they were publishing all kinds of great writers. They were like an early publisher of Roxane Gay and Blake Butler and like they were doing really cool work. He helped signal boost kind of our, our search for Florida-based writers and we ended up finding 10 great short stories set in Florida or not set in Florida by Florida writers. They weren't necessarily set there. So already from like a marketing and publishing perspective like this isn't a great anthology <laughs> you know what I mean other than that the stories are quality. It was more like a literary magazine but we really didn't know what we were doing. But it turned out that most of these writers just by by chance, not only were from Florida, but were from Central Florida. 
So we had this book launch and they all came and not only did they all come, they all brought their friends and their friends weren't just there to support them. They were also writers. And a lot of people at this release party were like, oh, like they, under, they knew what a small press was. They were into literature, that whole world. And a lot of them had maybe graduated from UCF. Some of them were just happened to be writers that landed in Orlando. And from there, we found this sort of need or, or desire to continue to exist. So it cost money to publish a book. So it was, we started to um, publish local writers on like a blog and it could be about whatever, but it was people that we'd met through the reading and through the book release party. We also met this guy, Jay Bradley at, at that book party and he wanted to start a reading series and we happened to be able to provide him with the space and we designed a logo. So we basically collaborated on a prose reading series. So, and we did that for three or four years. And that was an opportunity that didn't exist before. We called it closed mic prose because there was so much open mic poetry. Um, again, nothing wrong with that, but there wasn't what we wanted. And so we, we thanks to, to Jay, we helped make that and build that. And we provided a platform for short story writers and prose writers to share their work. We didn't exhaust ourselves of them. After three years, you know, four writers a month, you know, I don't think we ever repeated. We were, you know, so it felt like we were doing good there. And then on top of that, I also met Nathan Hollick at, the, at that original book launch. And he led us to our next book, which was an also hyper-local called 15 Views of Orlando. And so we found local writers uh, to write about the city. We did it sequentially. At first we released it online, but then it became a book. And then, and that again, that built to sequels and like Jakira approached us about doing the Miami version. And so we did a Tampa version as, or a Bay, Tampa Bay version as well. Right. That was kind of early borough, but basically we continue to do the three, the three pillars that originated from there, which is printing books, not as many as a big publisher, just two or three a year, publishing online and doing events. And so as we kind of grew and as we amassed a local following, we then started to venture outward a little bit. And since then have been a little bit more nationally recognized, I guess, like in terms of a small press and certainly have made connections nationally with other writers and have published writers from elsewhere. When we turned the blog into an online journal, we started publishing writers from all over the world. And so that kind of opened things up for us too. And we became, and we also started to know what we were doing a little bit more and like what it meant to be doing what we were doing. And, you know, where we are now is kind of a, a, a slightly more refined version of where we were when we started, always with, always with an eye toward what's going on in, at least in Florida, if not in Orlando too. And I know that with a lot of journals that start, there's a lot of work that people don't understand. And so they often peter out, mm -hmm. you know, after a few years. So y'all have done a lot of work and to have these books, it's a, a relatively small team. Yeah, so the, the reason why we were able to continue to exist is because Shortly after we did that first book, Jana moved to LA and she said, you're doing great with this, like, keep it. This is your thing. Keep running it. And I was like, okay, well, I don't have any money. And Jana had financed the first book. You know, she kind of put some of her own money into it. I was working for a nonprofit at the time that just had one program, a children's program called Page 15. And that was a creative writing for kids program. And there was room for more. And so around 2012, I was able to convince that board of directors to move under the nonprofit umbrella. And so from 2012 to today, my role became more and more borough. And so unlike a lot of publishers uh, or a lot of small press publishers and small press people, I was, I was able to be compensated, not a ton, but you know, that's to be expected, I think. As it became more of a community fixture, I was able to spend more of my time doing it. So that around 2016, 
I was just doing borough press and I have been since. But yeah, we do have editors, you know, contributing editors who find work for the journal, a poetry editor, a fiction editor who help with the online journal, we have someone who helps with the live events, who hosts them, Jared Sylvia. He hosts them, he helps with all the tech stuff and helps with the setup. Yeah, and then a handful of other rotating, sometimes MFA students from the university or um, pop in to help. But otherwise, yeah, it's kind of a <clears throat> me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And what were the, the books that you published this year? This year we did two, and they're both out already. In April, we published A Sinking Ship is Still a Ship by Ariel Francisco. That is uh, a book of poems all set in Miami and kind of dealing with climate change and the environment in a very great conversational, sarcastic, clever, depressed, funny tone throughout. Um, it has that kind of range to it. Sort of as a fluke, Ariel's also a translator, and he when he published a poem in The New Yorker, he had connected with someone about translating it. And he brought up the idea to me. He said, you know, what if we can do the book? What if we can get the book translated too? And I was like, that would be great. Um, so we, you know, it was basically at his behest and with his connection to the translator, uh, Nicholas Cabrera Schneider, that book now appears in parallel translation. So it's technically a book in English and Spanish with the languages side by side. So that's super cool. That's the first time we've done something like that. And that was April's release. And then in June, we published A Fish Growing Lungs, which is a collection of linked essays by Alicia Sachin. Those are great, too. There's a couple of Florida-based essays because she grew up in Tampa, but it's not really a Florida collection. It's, it's about her discovering that she was misdiagnosed bipolar and kind of the after effects of that, the fallout of that, or the, real, the realization then, and then kind of the fallout from that and sort of trying to find her way back toward a, a sort of balance and normalcy. So it's got a little bit of everything, mental illness and addiction and uh, medicine and stigmas surrounding all those things. And it's told in a kind of style. It's like, it's my favorite kind of balance of like research and essayistic telling with personal stuff too. And so with COVID and everything, how has that affected your publishing model or just in general, the press? Yeah, well, since we're tied to the, the children's program and tied to a larger nonprofit, anything that affects the whole affects the parts. So like our cash flow has been completely screwed up and there's been all kinds of changes on that end. But we're persisting. The biggest practical change in, that someone would notice would be that we can't do events anymore, uh, right. live events. And so we had a whole tour scheduled for Ariel. He was going to go to Miami, Orlando, Tampa, Gainesville, um, and probably by the time we were finished booking it, two other cities, but it all got scrapped because that was all happening in, that was all set to happen in April. And um, by then, Florida was even officially like sheltering in place, I think. To adapt to that, we, we simply started to do events online. Unfortunately, we haven't done as many as we had planned, but we're still doing them. And honestly, I should say we're doing them with, by, by the saving grace of bookstores with professional Zoom accounts. We've been able to, you know, find a bookstore partner or another organization to take our ragtag live event and just professionalize it on Zoom. Alicia's event probably wasn't even going to be like a bookstore event or even it was going to be something kind of out there. But we ended up partnering up with The Rumpus and they connected us with Books or Magic. And so Books or Magic basically made that event happen. It brought up sort of other opportunities that we wouldn't have had. So now that we're all at home and um, not doing events and you know having events canceled, 
Alicia was able to reach out to other people that we wouldn't have necessarily been able to bring to Florida to do the event with her. So she did her event with Kaveh Akbar, which is super cool. Similarly, Ariel's event, that's happening thanks to White Whale Bookstores, uh, bookstore in Pittsburgh, which is another great independent bookstore. And also thanks to Kim Souza, who's a poet, Roy, Roy Guzman, who's going to be a part of it, and then also Ariel's player. So it's going to be, they're going to lead this sort of panel and reading. And so in a way, the adaptation has been reliant upon collaboration and uh, the goodwill of other people. And so, because it's easy for us to throw a live event together here, we've been doing it for years, but I mean, the plan was this year to have, and maybe begin a tradition of having a sort of annual big Florida reading party and kind of go all out. Whereas with other readings, we'll, you know, we can book a theater or book a, a art space and set up a microphone and a projector and we're good to go. So yeah, that's not, that's clearly not going to happen. And I don't foresee that kind of thing happening until at least the fall of next year for me, just because of all the uncertainty and having to cancel things, you know, at the last minute when things spike, like who knows, I just, that's not something that I'm going to spend my time on. But that said, I'm kind of hooked on virtual events now. Like, yeah. like I'm going to more events <laughs> now that they're virtual. Yeah. And you can like, you know, put it on, I'll put my laptop on the kitchen counter while I'm cooking and watch the event, you know, um, or something like that. So. So how's your own writing going? It's good. Um, thanks for asking. I, I have a, a thesis that is a novel that I was working on for a while, but didn't really, didn't really click as to what it was until just before the residencies started uh, um, a year and a half ago. I worked on that for two semesters, and then I spent the last semester, my third semester, throwing a lot of rough stuff out for a future project working on, you know, character development and chapters and voice and for, for this other idea that's not fully formed. And now I'm in my, the middle of my last semester and I'm returning to the novel to basically give it one more good revision uh, and make that my thesis. Surprisingly, for the first couple months of this year and even the first few weeks of quarantine, like writing was very productive. Like I, this novella just kind of came out of me mm -hmm. um, and like this long short story kind of came out of me and I'm still happy with them. And you know, they still need some tweaks here and there. I'm like, wow. And, um, but now that it's time to focus on the, uh, once June came around, that's the start of the last semester. And so I've been kind of paralyzed <laughs> a little bit in terms of motivation to write, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm just kind of slouching my way back into the novel to finish it up. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. So that's I don't know if it's hard to write in this, amid this pandemic, but. Well, I'm doing a podcast instead of writing. So yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people are doing random other expressions. Like an, a professor of mine is like, now is the time for collage. Um, she's like taking up collage. I'm like, great. That's, I think maybe I subconsciously saw the clock running out on my brain space and bandwidth and was just like, I was able to crank something out for a few weeks. And now I've just, <laughs> now I'm just reading a lot. I don't know. Publishing other people, which is nice. And can you tell us a little bit about your publishing other people in the magazine still? Yeah, in and, the magazine. Yeah. So can you talk to us a little bit about Fantastic Florida's and how it's changed over the years? Originally, it was called Borough Press Review. Really, we kind of just changed formats. But we had an online journal since 2011, 2012. And that was a traditional, typical online journal that published poetry, prose, um, fiction, nonfiction, Actually, we didn't publish poetry for a while. We just published fiction and nonfiction. The, the premise, which we stuck to, 
since then in all formats and iterations is just one new piece every week because the one thing that I don't like to do is get overwhelmed with information and that's kind of impossible. And so even when literary journals do an issue of a reasonable amount of pieces, like 10 pieces, it's still kind of overwhelming. And certainly an online journal to go and keep a page up with links to all the 10 pieces for a given you know issue or whatever. It wasn't how I consumed short stories online. And so I thought that it would be good to just do one thing a week and have it featured and, and at the top of the site, share it on social media. And then next week we move on and then you, you can then go to the archive, you know, so if you find one piece in it, you come across a piece on any given week, you know, you have 52 opportunities to see a new piece throughout the year and you want to learn more, then you can go into the archives and do that. It was a format that made sense to me and a frequency that made sense to me without, you know, becoming overwhelmed. And then over time, you know, we had several great editors who worked on that. And really at some point I wasn't touching it at all, but volunteer editors, you know, they, they come and go when they, they move on to other things. And I understand that that's just how it goes. So at some point when, when the editors were growing wary, I was also kind of growing wary of the journal's niche. Um, what made Borough Press Review different from any other literary journal that was publishing short stories and nonfiction or whatever. Not much other than that. Hopefully we were one of the, one of the better ones. I don't know. I'd always had an interest in publishing Florida focused work and I developed a network of a ton of writers had published some of them early on. Like one of the first people we published in Borough Press Review was Lindsay Hunter. Like I was a, a fan of hers from, from a long time ago. And so she's always been a great connection. And I, we just published something again from her recently. We had, we had her do a collaboration with a photographer. So she looked at the photos and created a short story based on photos taken around the space coast. So anyway, always had this interest. And I thought, well, now's the time. I don't want to stop publishing people every year, you know, once a week. I think it's a great thing to do. Um, so we just around 2018 or 17, I can't quite remember, changed formats and decided that we would call it Fantastic Floridas and that there would be a focus on poetry. We would add poetry and we would do fiction and nonfiction. For a little while, we did interviews, which I think I'm going to bring back. And, you know, we didn't look back. That said, we have recently-ish tried to communicate a very, very, very broad definition of what we mean by Florida. And it, it's something that's not necessarily easy to communicate succinctly, but it's something that I try to communicate, especially to writers I reach out to, to solicit. Because when you say Florida literature, for example, we're open for submissions, we'll get a ton of, you know, nature writing and poetry, like kind of postcard poetry that's like imagery of nature. A lot of it's beautiful um, and, and there's nothing, a lot of it's really good, but it's not exactly what I want to always publish. And so in opening the definitions, we kind of went back to the, or the origin of the name, right? Which is from a Rimbaud poem. And technically, Fantastic Floridas is sort of an alternate translation. Like newer translations don't use fantastic. You know, Rimbaud was writing before capital F Florida, you know, was a thing. And so that specific title speaks to something more than just a geographical state. And so in the guidelines, in the revision of the guidelines, we're, we're at least trying to open it up to different genres that are focused on Florida. We're, we're trying to reach out to, you know, sci-fi writers and horror writers. We will, be, we will be publishing a horror piece pretty soon. Fantasy and fairy tale. Um, and 
with that's set in Florida or focused on Florida because it's so, I mean, Florida is so weird that it, it lends itself to those genres. And some of that work does exist and we want to publish some of that too. And then on the other side of things, we're looking for something also more elusive. And this has been even more difficult to kind of communicate, right? This sort of lowercase F Florida work that has a Florida texture or a Florida feel or a Florida soul, if you will, that, you know, a quality you can't quite name that I would try to name by saying it's uncanny or it's strange or it's absurd. You know, other adjectives that you could say that Florida is that it deals in high contrasts, right? Like rich, poor, man-made, natural, unique ecosystems like the Everglades, you know, if there's a piece set on some other planet where there's a unique ecosystem, like great, Florida has that too. And so to get that kind of work has been a challenge. But basically the message is if you've got something kind of stranger off kilter, send it anyway and see what happens. We're still getting mostly like place-based stuff, but there are going to be a few things where place doesn't really play a, a role at all. Or a few things that also kind of are outside what you would consider literary. What does that even mean anyway? And so that's what I'm looking for. Hoping to quote unquote expand the boundaries of Florida literature, right? In the same way that Shane's introduction to the anthology isn't prescriptive and isn't labeling Florida literature as one thing. I'm hoping that the banner of Fantastic Floridas can be this sort of nebulous, amorphous, multivalent, you know, let me use all the theory words, right? <laughs> um, ambiguous space, ambiguous blob that kind of sucks in really great work that says something about either Florida, the state or this Florida or this, or creates this alternate kind of universe of Florida, this, this more abstract nebulous Florida. I I think that's what's so important about Burrow as a press is because smaller presses can be a little bit more experimental historically than maybe some of the bigger presses. And so with a thriving small press, the definition can expand, has more room. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, I kind of have to seek it out. Like people aren't necessarily seeking out Florida work or doing Florida work, but I've been really successful in just asking people. And everybody who's lived here usually has something, poets or fiction writers. What I'm really excited about and I hope to start doing in the, in the new year is not only pairing people for interesting conversations, so trying to think of who are two Florida writers or writers who are from Florida that could have an interesting conversation about it, or maybe just about their own work and let the Florida off to the wayside, but also pairing people kind of like we've done a couple times in the online journal to collaborate. So two writers who live in Florida or a writer and a visual artist living in Florida and see what happens there too. That's something I'm excited about. And I think people, the people I've asked so far to do these things are, have responded positively. And so I think we're going to be hopefully seeing more of that, that level of collaboration because even collaboration in itself isn't something you see a lot in the literary world. Um, It's just, I wrote this and (laughs) it exists in this, uh, in this one context. Whereas once you introduce, you know, a painting or a piece of music or something, the context and the possibilities for meaning, you know, just they multiply. So I'm interested in that right now too. So I I wanted to ask one more question before we kind of wrap things up. Since you have so much experience with the small press and just publishing, what would be some advice that you might give to someone who wanted to start either a magazine, a journal, or eventually a press? 
you know, I kind of threw myself into this, right? And maybe throwing yourself into it without knowing what you're doing is good for some people because it's not, it's certainly not going to bring riches and all that or fame or whatever, but it's enriching work, right? And so one thing I wish I did differently was I wish that there was kind of more preparation before starting. We kind of just, like I said, I gave you a bit of the origin story. We are like, let's, uh, let's do an anthology. Let's do a book and see what happens. I didn't really know much about small presses then. I certainly learned a whole lot since. I think I would have, um, and luckily if it hadn't been brought under the nonprofit, it just filtered out and fizzled away because there was some structure there. So one thing I would say to anyone who doesn't, who certainly isn't about to incorporate as a 501c3 or has any kind of um, resources or monetary resources would be to create a kind of vision plan of what you want it to be. And once you get all the great abstract stuff down on paper, then create a sort of program overview, like a more practical, not, not business plan necessarily, just a who, what, when, where, why of, of what you're doing. And then as you kind of create that, I think you start to ask more of the questions, well, how am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do that? And you figure out what you need to do. So preparation in advance, right? Like having a clear idea of what you wanna do before you just jump into it. I think that would have been good for me, but um, personally, but also um, knowing that you don't necessarily need a ton of resources to do it, you know, especially if you're gonna do an online journal, you just gotta, you know, websites are free. You just got to host it somewhere. I'm sure some, in some cases, you know, you can get hosting for free. Really, you just want to, you want to be driven by that passion and you want to find other people who are like you who are passionate to help as well. And especially with something like an online journal that's not necessarily focused in Florida, you can reach out all over the country and find people to, to work with remotely. On top of that, reaching out, especially before you start, reaching out to people like me with specific questions. Like I, I actually literally, there's a guy who's starting a, has started a little publishing company, small press here in Orlando. He had a literary magazine and I think it's kind of merging more into publishing. He just sent me a question today about paper, paper stock. <laughs> and I'm happy to answer it. So, um, and when, when I was starting out, especially when I was trying to figure out what, what a small press was and you know how to do things, and especially when we were considering like distributing books traditionally, like doing what the big five do and you know, um, trying to get books in bookstores, I talked to publishers at other small and medium-sized presses. Um, I was able to talk to the publisher of Zank Books. I was able to talk to the publisher of Featherproof Books at the time. I talked to the publicist at Tin House Books. A really nicely worded email, respectful of someone's time, looking for information will often yield positive results. So if anyone's listening and they reach out to me, I will get to your email and I'll read it and I will reply to you um, as thoroughly as I can, you know? And if there's time and somebody wants to get on the phone, I've, I've done that too. So knowing that it's a community and it's a community of, of helpful, passionate people who, are, who will be there to support you. I'm sure there's a jerk here and there, but in my experience, like I was able to have more clarity about going forward and what borough should be in the future by talking to others too. So do, do some research, like know what you want to do. Do your research too, you know, read publishing for dummies or whatever it is and do some heavy Googling. But then also you'll still have questions, right? So then reach out to the community because that's what, that's what they're there for. That would be my advice. That's great. That's so generous too. Is there anything you might want to add that we haven't chatted about? Anything of your own work or boroughs that you want people to know? 
Well, yeah, I would love to, I would love for people to look at fantastic Florida's more. And uh, if there are writers listening who have really weird out there stuff, that's not necessarily set in place, but kind of has a very strange texture. Or if there are people out there who are writing about Florida, submit to us. We're open till the end of August, but we'll, I think it's probably going to be open for the rest of the year. I might just open it up. So um, yeah, check out the online journal because right now we've, we're done with our books for the year. But when you do check out the online journal, you'll be on our site so you can poke around and see what else we have to offer. But yeah, that's kind of been my focus lately. So expand that boundary and create that strange pluralistic nebulous aesthetic of, of Florida. Whatever. The journal has such good work published on it. And I love the whole idea of expanding the definition. So send any kind of Florida. I'm excited about this horror piece that you have coming out or that's yeah, coming out soon. Uh, I'm looking Nick forward to Russell that. is the author. Yeah, we're just going through a couple edits. It's cool. It's creepy. Yeah, it's not like body horror or gore, but it's, it's, real, it's real creepy. And I'm learning at my tender young age there's all kind of spooky. It's not just generic and all. Reading, doing all this reading, even more than normal. It's made my dreams a lot more at night. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm dreaming more. Do you have a good dream life? That's a great question. Um, sometimes, yeah. I definitely dream and sometimes I'll remember them. Maybe once a month I'll remember a dream. But my dreams are always usually realistic. And as a child I had like scary dreams, you know, and nightmares and whatever. But now I just kind of have really mundane dreams and I'm not sure why. <laughs> I'm definitely like working out some very basic, silly thing that happened in the week or something. When something weird or shocking happens uh, in the dream, not necessarily scary. I usually, I tend to remember that. So I wake up feeling a little bit shaken, but also excited because I like when that happens because I'm like, what is my mind trying to tell me? Yeah, right yeah. That? What just happened in my brain? It's um, not really scary. And I, I try at those moments, if I'm awake enough to write it down. And Tyler, when he was a young, I'm going to say kid, he got real in, interested in the interpretations of dreams. Mm -hmm. And I remember buying a book for us. And like a lot of my books, I don't know where they are. It is anymore. But um, mm -hmm. I've always had a weight problem. So the other <laughs> night I was dreaming and everybody in my dream were very slender. And I could still name you a lot of people. My grandson was in it. But I was trying to hide the fact that I was not slender, which is hard to hide that fact. Mm -hmm. And I was, dance, I was dancing with this guy from school who's real slender. <laughs> and he, he dipped me over <laughs> and hurt his back. Oh, and no. I can just re remember being mortified, you know. And I'm having dreams every night right now. And I think it's from all the books I'm reading. But your mind is absorbing them and you're, it's always busy, right? And I think it's something about absorbing the words, too. That reminds me, though, Rebecca Renner, who's a Florida writer, I don't know if she would call herself that, she, about the pandemic dreams. That's a, like, that super, that interests me a lot. And so, um, yeah, I, that's why I wanted to say that. But that could be a whole episode. Talk about your dreams. <laughs> yeah, they're more vivid during the pandemic. Because I do think I know the article you're talking about, and she wrote about like the science behind it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've always also journaled. I find after years of writing, I doodle and I, you know, draw little things. And I've never been an artist. And this one here, I'd like to have his doodles um, taken to a psychiatrist. <laughs> Not that I, I don't think he's crazy, but I'd like to have them interpreted, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think as you have one field you're great in, 
and love it so much and so passionate about it, I think you start getting other um, areas of art, artistic. And I'm sure you know all about that. But these are things I keep learning, which makes life really worth living. Absolutely. Yeah. I hope I'm still learning and, and doodling and journaling and doing all those things too. You know, I think. I got a feeling you will be. <laughs> well, Ryan, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. You're very interesting uh, to listen to. I can tell you love words. <laughs> and I love, uh, I love words too. I've always been a reader. And then as you get older, you can read even more. You got, you got any books you want to send me? <laughs> People are sending us books now. Uh, but I mean, uh, um, and I've known that you can change your own world by the way you use your words just in conversing. You can say things and get things over if you just have a nice tone of voice, a smile on your face. And every now and then throw in a word that people maybe don't understand. <laughs> that gets their attention. But, you know, uh, so it's been uh, fine. Just a delight to listen to you talk. Thank you guys for having me. And thank you, Annie. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so really much. Good. And stay well with your dog and everything. <laughs> I will. I'll be all right. I'll be fine. And like we say to some of the, the people we talk to, when this gets all over, maybe we can go out karaoke sometime. Absolutely. I'm there. I love to karaoke. That's another way to use words. Yes, absolutely. That <laughs> sounds great. That's the end of our episode. I'm really impressed with that man. He had a lot to say about literature, about dreams. And he said your idea of having a podcast was brilliant. I mean, subscribe to that idea, subscribe to that pod. Well, we got a pizza in the oven, so we got to get on out of here. Smells good. Have a great day and have some sunshine. Amen. Bye. Bye.